0: Welcome to Redeemer Lives, Redeemer Lives, a podcast by and about the spirituality of the richly diverse Milwaukee Christians who are all connected to little, bold Redeemer Church in the heart of the city on Wisconsin Avenue. I'm Lisa Bates-Froyland, pastor of Redeemer, and since 2011, I've been on a journey with the incredible people you'll meet on this podcast each week. I always say there are no dull people at Redeemer, and thanks be to God for that. Even during this pandemic, our Redeemer lives, and we are living our Redeemer lives. Redeemer Lives, Redeemer Lives is sponsored by Jeff One Row Designs. For more than 15 years, the creative team at Jeff One Row Designs has been handcrafting liturgical textiles. Their processional banners and seasonal banners grace sanctuaries across the country. Their frontals and pyramids adorn altars and lecterns in churches of all sizes. Clergy love their pastor stoles, I have three myself, deacon stoles, and other vestments, too. They are proud to include Episcopal, Presbyterian, Methodist, ELCA Lutheran, United Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ, Unitarian, and Roman Catholic faithful among their clients. Interfaith and non-denominational clergy love the inclusivity of their designs. So whether you are shopping for the smallest accessory or reevaluating your entire collection of vestments and pyramids, Jeff One Row Designs would be honored to work with you to create something perfect for you. Jeff One Row Designs, W U N R O W, making Ordinary Time Extraordinary since 2005. When you order, be sure to enter the coupon code RedeemerLives15 on this week's podcast Reverend John Jacobs joins me for a conversation on living the Bible. So many times we hear the Bible spoken of pejoratively as a collection of tall tales. But for those of us who have lived in faith for many many years, the stories kind of sink into our skin and our bones and when we live things that are similar to the stories we know, we put them together and the insights kind of bounce off of one another in a really unique way that I wanted to explore with John Jacobs today, um, inspired largely by a story that he told me when I was trying to prepare the annual sermon on the transfiguration of Jesus, that time when he took uh, three disciples up to the top of a mountain with him. And all of a sudden, he was bathed in light, and it was clear that he was much more than a man, that he was God's son, the Messiah. And so, I don't know, that sounds like a great story, but sometimes I've had blocks in trying to preach it. And he told me a personal story that uh, opened up that particular passage for him, and he's going to share that in just a few moments. John Jacob served in ordained ministry for 45 years. He was raised in Oklahoma and attended seminary at Hama School of Theology in Ohio. He served parishes in Michigan before coming to Milwaukee in 1991, where he served as pastor at Ascension Lutheran Church on Milwaukee's near South Side. That was a ministry that developed a faith community in three languages, English, Spanish, and Hmong. John retired in 2017 and joined Redeemer with his wife two years ago. So besides being a mentor to me and a great source of collegial support, John is coordinating a team effort to establish an interfaith gathering center at the corner of 19th and Wisconsin Avenue in Milwaukee. Joan leads our outdoor pantry efforts at Redeemer. So I asked John to come by for this podcast today because of that story, but I want to start, John, with the question I ask everyone. How is it with your soul and how's your ongoing conversation with God these days?
1: Well, thanks for having me, Pastor Lisa. And uh, when I saw the question again this morning, knowing that you ask it, I just happened to be in a conversation yesterday with um, the director of a program that both Joni and I serve on the board of. And um, we we're planning a board meeting for next week, and, and we talked about that very question. And she's... Um, About my same age and uh, very spiritually centered. And we talked about humbleness Mm. and where we are in our lives and what we have learned throughout our experiences. And so where I'm at right now, and I shared this with Lori, was that um, I have more time to pray and meditate than I've ever had. And I've gone deeper and part of it then in going deeper is to understand that where i have been in my life has been fraught with um ego
0: hmm.
1: and turmoil and um and the and the need and maybe it's just the age that we with so many experiences one can evolve and become hopefully a bit wiser,
0: Mm.
1: and a bit humble in how we live our lives. So that's what came to my mind this morning, and it just was a good reflection on a conversation from yesterday.
0: What an amazing combination to think about, wisdom and humility together. Mm. And maybe one inspires the other in in ways. Ooh, I'm going to think on that (laughs) a while longer. Well, let's get to the story that I promised listeners at the beginning. Tell us about that experience that brought you new insight into the Transfiguration story.
1: I love telling this story uh, because it was so important for me and my family. Um, It was the year of 2000. And um, we were going to make a trip to the state of Washington um we had planned this because several years before that we had also been out there and mind you that Joni lived in Tacoma for her high school years and college years and her father taught at Pacific Lutheran University in Tacoma and so we knew it but our son didn't know that area he he didn't get out there that much because they moved back to to Minnesota before before he became a little bit older in his life. And, and he had the opportunity at 13, as both kids did, to plan the family vacation one year. And he planned it. And we went out to Washington. He wanted to go out there and see where, you know, Mama and Papa lived and, and all that stuff. And and so we had a great vacation when Ben was 13 and, and Erica was um, in high school. And And um, we did a lot of camping and climbing and hiking. And we had spent um, several days up in Paradise Valley Valley, uh, on Mount Rainier. And one day Eric and I went up to, climbed up to base camp at 10,000 feet. You can do that um, um, through the snowfields. And Ben and and Joni stayed down below because their knees were hurting. And we, we made it to base camp, and we sat there having lunch, and the clouds opened up, and we saw people coming down from the summit. And Erica goes, you know, I'd like to do that someday. And I said, you know, I would too. And so we made a pact that when I turned 50 and she was graduated, had graduated from college, we would come back and do it. That brought us to 2000. We signed up six months before. only way you can get above 10,000 feet is to be an experienced mountaineer or take school and so we signed up for the training classes and um, you know like these outfitters do they they had the responsibility to do that working with the forestry service so we did and we made it out there but prior to going in that August well Joni's father had died just Hmm. a month before Hmm. and my mom had died three years before so there were two deaths of, of the four grandparents and but with Emmett's death, it was like I said, Babe, you really want to go out to you know Tacoma now? Yeah, I think we should. We've planned it, and I think it'd be good to get you know out to where mom and dad lived for a while. So we made the trip, and we weren't really prepared, but we kind of lied our way through the school and said, Oh, yeah, we've been doing all this you know training. And, and then we went through this day long training, and we actually passed, mm-hmm. we learned how to climb belayed to each other using crampons on our boots and ice picks and learning how to breathe at high altitude. So we had our equipment together and the next day we started with a group of uh, the 25 that were going to go on that particular um, trip. And um, we were climbing to the base camp and it was at that point that um, decisions had to be made which team you would be with um, I asked the guides that, that the three of us would be teamed together. It was very important to make this trip together, given what had happened in our family and what was going on. So no, we don't like to do that, but I will talk to the lead guide. Long story short is that um, uh, after sleeping a few hours and getting ready to, to, um, to begin the summit and the teams are divided up, we were teamed together and we were the lead team. We went out with a <laughs> wow. lead guide. And it was a climb that you start about 1 o'clock in the morning. So mm. when we woke up from taking our naps in the shelters at, at the base camp, we discovered that the sky had cleared and there was no longer clouds. It was clear, so clear. You could reach up and touch the Milky Way. You could see the forest fires in eastern Washington, And so we packed up and began our summit, and um, it was tough. I mean, it's tough to climb in the dark. You have lights on your helmets. You're belayed together. You're getting used to that. We made it to the first 1,000 feet, rested, and then continued. And the second 1,000 feet, the second hour and a half of climbing, was on the face of the glaciers. And there are many 14,000 feet in the United States, but what makes Rainier unique is that it's just all glacier. That's why you can't go above 10,000 feet without experience. And and so when you're at the face of the glacier, you have a very thin path. And it's just straight drop off on one side and a wall of ice on the other. And I said it was just incredibly clear. And I was marveling what I could see. And I was marveling at the fact that I was between my daughter and my son. There was the lead guide, my daughter, myself, and my son, all roped together. And I thought, how fortunate. And I thought about how my dad had called the night before and wished us luck, and how Joni's mom had called, and all of our, you know, brothers and sisters and cousins, they all knew we were climbing the mountain. And Joni was down below. She couldn't do the climb. She just can't handle going down a mountain. She could go up. And I thought, how fortunate. And then all of a sudden, out in the air, to my right, next to the stars, my mom and Emmett showed up. Life size, floating in the air. And I was shaking my head and I said, oh man, it's. I'm not that high to be oxygen deprived yet. I don't think I'm hallucinating. And um, I just looked at them and, and I began to cry. Still see it today. And I thought, wow, they showed up. They left a while and we climbed some more and, and then they showed up again. And they didn't say anything. They were just there, just kind of shimmering in that starlight with big smiles on their faces. So we made it to the next uh, rest stop. And we put on our big parkas because it's below freezing up there, even in August. And um, I sweat like crazy. And we took some water on and Ate a bit of the candy bar, and I said to the kids, have you, did you guys see anything? No, Dad, what? Because <laughs> I'm, well, they know me. So I said, I Mama, I mean, uh, Grandma and Papa showed up. Really? They did. They showed up twice during the last hour, just smiling on us. Wow, Dad. And Ben's, Ben said, you know, I was gassed out. I thought I was going to quit. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any energy. And all of a sudden, I did. It must have been them. And we said, you know, there's no question now. We'll make it to the top. And we knew that we might not because, as they said, everybody has their summit. Sure. And probably about half the group made it to the top. But we knew we would. So the next 2,000 feet, you know, all kinds of interesting things happened. But we made it to the top. And I think that part of it was because we we knew we weren't alone with the people who were alive in a part of our lives, but the people who were dead in a part of our lives were with us too, family. So it was a tremendous experience. We came down off the summit, went down um, back to Paradise, on down another day, climb or descent, and... Joni was there to greet us, and I told her. And she said, that's amazing. Because she had been reading, while we were climbing, a book called Cara*, by John O'Donohue. Gaelic for soul friend. Mm-hmm. And she said, opened up a passage, and it talks about that thin veil between those of the living and those of the dead. And how there's a relationship. And how often, and I think this is almost a direct quote, you're walking along a path and there's a boulder that might fall on you, but that soul friend will hold it back to allow safe passage. And she had been given that book by by a dear friend who had said, you know, this might help you in your grieving Mm -hmm. over the death of your father. And for us, it kind of completed that circle, of that understanding of how there is this thin veil between what we know now and what we might know after we die. And the relationships that we have are so important. For me, that's part of showing up on a mountain in an era when people that Jesus was hanging with were all subject to all kinds of terror and some dead old friends showed up and blessed that time on their mountain so that they could be given energy and understand who Jesus was. So for me, that's part of that thing that happens through the gift of the Spirit on and on, generation after generation.
0: Moses and Elijah next to Jesus. Mm-hmm. So in a way, the experience that you had made spiritual sense to you because you'd read about something similar before, and maybe you didn't process all of that that day.
1: Not necessarily, mm-hmm. but when you read the story of Moses and Elijah share, you know, showing up, and I can only imagine what those disciples and Jesus had on their hearts and what they were trying to deal with. And to have that assurance... Yeah. That soul friend.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You've been studying the Bible a long time. Do you think that there is room for it to be a way of understanding our own experiences?
1: To me, that's the primary way to understand story and Bible. The interface between our experience and the story that we read about And it's helpful to know the context of where the story in the Bible comes from, perhaps what's going on at time, where the story came from, who wrote it. But it's that, to me, it's that interface between the written word and our lived experience. And that's where God is present. So yeah, I think it's always possible to learn and to reflect and to understand the Spirit's been around since the beginning Mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm.
1: in relationship Mm
0: -hmm.
1: with all kinds of things in the creation, but with us as well.
0: Why do you think so many people, perhaps they were initially raised in faith, end up rejecting whole portions of the Bible?
1: My understanding is that people have been told that how they encounter Scripture is wrong. Ah. And I don't think it's helpful to tell people that how they encounter a story, read a book, interpret it, make sense out of it, their own experience. I don't think it's helpful to tell them that it's wrong because I think then people will go someplace else. So I think it's the tension of, you know, when well-meaning people say, oh, this is how to understand it, this is how you should. It kind of gets in the way of people's own experiences and their own wisdom. But they bring to it. So I think people get turned off with that. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Have you wrestled with similar concerns, passages, stories in the Bible that Sometimes we wish weren't there. <laughs> sure, because
1: <laughs> the Bible is, is a book full of stories of all the kinds of things that we human beings do, good and bad.
0: Uh huh.
1: And people are trying to make sense out of those experiences and, and blaming God
0: mm-hmm.
1: or not blaming God or blaming people they don't like or not. And so, yeah, there are parts of the Bible I don't like, but I understand that it comes from people's lived experiences. They put it down. They write it. I can dialogue with it. We can talk about it mm-hmm. as colleagues, as fellow Christians, as people who read other holy books. Right. So I, I'm just sorry that sometimes you know people are told that, no, that's not the way to read it. At one time, I was, uh, I was taking a, a course in, in uh, the Gospel of John, and, I, and it was in the Book of Revelations. And, you know, that's just full of imagery that's just out of science fiction. <laughs> you know, and, so, and, 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 and I, I remember the prophet saying, John, you know, you're struggling with your papers. I mean, this is, this is not the way to read a book. Don't you paint or don't you write poetry or something? I said, yeah, why don't you paint some pictures instead of writing me all these papers?
0: <laughs> wow. <laughs> so
1: I painted pictures
0: uh-huh.
1: of the of the apocalypse of John.
0: uh-huh
1: I said, oh, that's how I can that's how I can interface that story mm-hmm. it, it, it's It's a picture it, it, it describes something, a feeling, a hope. That's the way to encounter scripture. So that freed me. That prof freed me to understand Scripture in a different way so I didn't have to throw away the Bible and quit seminary.
0: Right, <laughs> because the book of Revelation really can break a person.
1: Oh, it can. Definitely. People have tried to understand it, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. Either trying to read it literally or make it stand in for things that are happening today, and mm-hmm. like a decoder ring or whatever. Oh, yeah. But when you speak of it like... A piece of artwork eliciting an emotional response, and that the artist who created it um, was communing with the spirit, but also with the pressures and oppressions of his time.
1: Exactly. Can you imagine being imprisoned and having these visions?
0: Mm, no, no, I can't. Um, but I'm glad it's there mm-hmm. in the whole collection mm-hmm. so that I can see. Even though it was a way. battle
1: to put it there. Right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's been delightful to have you and Joan come and join and be with us here at Redeemer during uh, a little bit of kind of... No- is there ever normal normal time at Redeemer? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. But I, I ask everyone who is on the pod to share a favorite Redeemer memory, so I wonder if you would do that before you go.
1: Yes, uh, I can. There's two. I remember Christmas a couple years ago, and our whole family was in church, and um you did the thing that you do at Christmas Eve. You take all the kids back in the, to the narthex, and you prep them, I think, in terms of you know who's missing at the nativity scene. And then all the kids come walking up with their little um, figurines from the nativity, and you were asking, Now, who's missing? And my granddaughter Harper said, the penguin. <laughs>
0: yes, that's right. <laughs> and,
1: and, you know, like you covered pretty, you covered it pretty well, I think, and, and so forth. And a chuckle through. But, you know, I talked to Harper about that. And, and she well, the penguin. And I tried to figure out what that meant. And, and I think it's just, you know, that's her image of stiff people as, you know, miniatures and standing there like a penguin, I guess. Anyway, I thought that was funny. But more importantly, I remember the morning that we had that impromptu service on the steps where Johnny was killed. And that was powerful. I remember Aaron playing the cello out there. Mm -hmm. It was a cold morning. Mm -hmm. And, And I remember the prayers and the testimonies, but that cello was playing. And I thought, this is a memorial service for a king. And it was in that moment that I knew that you reclaimed those steps in the name of God.
0: We had an earlier podcast uh, that also touched on that time in the life of the church. But just if you're you're popping into this podcast uh, as your first in this series, Johnny Smith was murdered on the east steps of Redeemer. He was a man without a home and nowhere else to sleep, and uh, he died in the early hours of March 29th, 2019, Mm -hmm. and uh, we gathered for worship and that second service two days later on a Sunday.
1: I just remember you saying, we've got to reclaim this space.
0: John, I wanna thank you for coming by and uh, sharing story and sharing theology in a way that I think we can all fasten ourselves onto in one way or another, and that we can't have too much of that. No. So thank you, John.
1: You're welcome. Thank you.
0: Hey, if you liked what you heard today, first of all, great. If you liked it so much you'd like to support us with a financial gift, please go to our website, RedeemerMilwaukee.org. There you'll see links to our YouTube services, information on how we're trying to serve our neighbors during the hardships of this pandemic, and yes, the donate button. Thanks in advance for the help. Redeemer Lives, Redeemer Lives is a podcast of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I'm Lisa Bates-Froyland, your host. Aaron Musser is our editor, sound designer, and engineer. Meredith Seip Sumner wrote and performed our theme. Join us again next week. Redeemer Lives, Redeemer Lives is sponsored in part by Outreach for Hope, a nonprofit organization that supports life-giving ministries who serve low-income communities in the Greater Milwaukee Synod of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Outreach for Hope grants have supported Redeemer Ministries for over 10 years. Until next time, peace be with you, peace be within you, and may peace be among us all. Goodbye.